0: So if everyone's ready, I think we'll begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing full well that we are sinners, but not yet appreciating the depth of our rebellion against you. Forgive us for the times when our actions fail to appreciate the work that you've already done in us. We pray that you would use this time to further convict us of our own personal transgressions, our secret sins, and grow us more into the image of your Son. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to another week of Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. So, Knowing Sin by Mark Jones has 18 chapters. This morning, we'll be studying chapters 8 and 9, entitled Sin's Secrecy and Sin's Presumption. Last week, Ryan led us through mourning and affliction over sin. And next week, Michael Alexander will be leading us through pride and selfishness. As a reminder, our author Mark Jones is a senior minister at Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church. He is the author and editor of many books and speaks all over the world on topics related to the Christian life. We'll start our study with a reading from Matthew, chapter 23. I'll have the text up here on the screen, but it may also be helpful to have the scripture text in front of you. So if you want to open your Bibles and follow along, um, I'll be referring to the text as we go. As I read, ask yourselves the question, what is the thrust of Jesus' argument? And what does Jesus mean when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad And their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides! If anyone swears by the temple, or who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater? and by everything on it and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of god and by him who sits upon it woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may, be, may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you... You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So what does it mean to be a whitewashed tomb? Looking at the text, if you have it in front of you, or if you can remember, can you give me some examples of the thrust of Jesus' argument and what he means by calling scribes and Pharisees, Whitewashed tombs. Okay, so um, rotten actions and they look nice. Visibly. Okay. Any other ideas? They speak nice. speak nice? Okay. They they know they know the right words to say. Okay. What do you see in there? Okay, so full of hypocrisy, lawlessness. But outwardly appearing righteous, right? So here's... So one of the things that I saw in there is... So descriptions of whitewashed tomb, right? They preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Outwardly, they appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay? So the scribes and the Pharisees in this text are displaying something that will be our first topic in our study today, which is called sinning in secret, right? Or secret sins. So is there something... To start out with that phrase, "secret sins," is there something like oxymoronic about the term "secret sin"? God knows all, God knows all right? So, in reality, there are no sins that are secret, truly, right? <clears throat> so, and that is the thing that somebody who is characterized as a whitewashed tomb is failing to recognize, right? <laughs> that no matter how well they try to hide their sins. There's no hiding their sins from God. So Mark Jones says it this way, Secret sins may not be a problem for us, except for the inconvenient fact that God knows our hearts better than we know them. We are not to imagine, therefore, as professing Christians, that we can act and live as though God is blind to our sins. So as stated in Psalm 119, time and time again, we need to be reminded that all our ways are before the Lord. And also, as stated in Hebrews chapter four, verse thirteen, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him, and or to, to of him who to whom we must give an account. So then, what precisely are secret sins? <clears throat> so looking at Obadiah Sedgwick. In his work, The Anatomy of Secret Sins, this Puritan offered a penetrating analysis of this particular manner of sinning. So for the purposes of our study this morning, a secret sin may, a secret sin may in which a person acts one, so here's one definition of secret sin, without a formal awareness of sinning, such as when Paul, in his zeal, persecuted the church. Also, a secret sin may refer to the manner of sinning. Some sins, which is bullet point number two up there, are colored and disguised as virtues. Like flattery may appear virtuous, but it is a lie designed for pernicious ends. Then there are sins, which is bullet point number three, kept off from the stage of the world, and committed outside the public eye of the world. So according to Mark Jones, there are rumblings like a violent volcano that occur only in the heart of a person, but do not manifest themselves in words or actions Many have observed a beautiful mountain, not knowing that a pool of magma may be boiling and ready to emerge and destroy anything in its way. Our secret sins are not dangerous because man sees them, but because God sees them and knows their hidden foundation. So now that we've established two categories, public sins and private secret sins, which one do you think is more dangerous? Private or okay, so, so it's corrupted. It's corrupted. It's corrupted. It's else. okay, so it has the opportunity to uh, exist without conce- without any apparent consequence. Apparent. Yeah. Um. So, to get at that topic, you know, maybe to help us parse it out, the question we need to ask is, what keeps us from sinning in public versus what keeps us from sinning in private? So, when we look at sins that are committed in public, what is it that prevents us from sinning in that context? Most of the time. Generally, there's a law. Okay. So, there may be... Uh, We have a legal system in place and sometimes not all the time our sins match up with laws that are in that legal system And there may be a punishment as a result of that, right? So we may fear punishment What else? Shame right we may fear how we look in front of others Now if you compare that now to secret sins, what is the consequence of secret sins Do those consequences still exist? And if if they don't exist, then what is the consequence? God's judgment, right? So we have the two ends here, right? Sins that are committed in public, most of the time, they're curtailed because we have a fear of man, right? Sins that are committed in private are curtailed, curtailed only by a fear of God, right? So... If, if there is a category of sin that the only thing that prevents us from acting out that sin is a fear of God then that in this categ- in these contexts can be more pernicious can go unchecked you know it, it allows it to continue without any kind of uh, consequence at least that we are immediately aware of mm-hmm well, and there's some bleed through as well because you could say that well, even a fear of God should prevent us from committing sins in public as well, right? Um, no, so that will be that'll be the next category that we get to in the latter half of the lesson. So these are these are sins um, that that we can commit that are, have no. Uh, you know, apparent consequence, you know, that, that other people don't know about, but, on, but only we know about. So secret sins might be thoughts, right? Um, so you can, you can lust without having uh, an apparent consequence, right? Or you can envy or be jealous, these, these types, or you can have hatred without having uh, any apparent consequence, you can hide your hatred, right? Um, or even secret sins might fall into the category of things you only you can act on but but only act on in private. So uh, engaging and looking at pornography might be considered a secret sin because you can think, well, I'm only this is something I'm I'm doing without other people knowing about and it it only affects me so so it doesn't affect other people so it, maybe it's okay. That type of thinking. Rob, should we also we're just talking about sin as well. Right. Right. So that in in reality for a christian that is the only thing that prevents us from act, acting out on sin right is the uh, christ spirit in us um well it's saying they're they're yeah the the butt part of that is that they they are dangerous right they they're dangerous because god sees them right Eventually, they manifest themselves in, in sins that are not secret, right? So Mark Jones says, We deceive ourselves with our sins by failing to understand what restrains us. We can hope that God's law and the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us will restrain us against actual sins. But very often we are held back by lesser means, such as fear of shame and punishment. When it comes to secret sins, this, real, this reality will make us more apt to commit them, because there is no fear of shame or punishment when we think no one is watching, except God, of course. Right. Right. Right, right. It's it's a you 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 are feeling the fact that you are guilty under God's law. Right. So so if we define secret sins as sins that are not held back by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, right? Like Brady was saying, then uh, then are secret sins only a problem for non-believers? Then no. Okay, so if secrets, secret sins really are um, the battleground of our sanctification, right? That's where we really experience our growing in Christ-likeness. We can deceive others with what goes on in our hearts, but is not acted upon outwardly. But we can never deceive God. So for non-Christians is it an is the fact that God sees all an undesirable thing or a desirable thing for non-Christians from the non-Christian's point of view is it a de- desirable thing that God sees all right cuz it cuz it exposes it's what it's making a statement that the, that those things that they hide are not really hidden, right? That's why they right. It's, it's, it's no right. 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 Thank you. Yeah, because you have. You smile and laugh, but this mm-hmm. a- right, because now you're redefining what sin is right and you can do that if god is, is not sin? part of the equation is it sin for, mm-hmm. is that sin for us is it sin for us to deny sin well, in others to to affirm that so, that somebody's uh there to a, a there. okay, okay. mhm and those who approve of those who do such things right Right, so we uh, we sh- we should not find ourselves. It it is sinful for, sinful for us to call something that is not us or that is sin not sin. Right. Okay. So let's let's hold on to the idea because I'm going to talk. I'm going to bring up the idea of hypocr- being a hypocrite later. Okay. Again. So let's hold on to that idea. So, but when we take that same question back and ask it about Christians, though, right? So for Christians. Not only do we know that there aren't any truly secret sins because of God's omniscience and his omnipresence, right? We also know this because he actually dwells in us. So is the fact that nothing is hidden from God an undesirable thing for Christians, or is it a desirable thing? Why is it desirable that God knows our secret sins? Okay. It, it will be an impediment to us sinning because we, we feel the guilt, right? Go ahead. Okay. If we know nothing is hidden from him, then we know that we need to ask for his forgiveness, right? It also propels our sanctification. Okay. How, how is it that it propels sanctification? So this is, again, exactly where sanctification is taking place in us, right? This is Christ's work in us. And if he doesn't know where, if he doesn't know those secret sins, then, then there's something misaligned that he doesn't know where his work is, right? It's a good thing that he knows where his work is in us. So according to Mark Jones, again, in one sense, this is the problem for us. We cannot escape God's eye but in another sense this is also the solution the God who sees immediately can cleanse and restore us those who live in the spirit will desire such inward cleansing so we have yeah create created me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me is the cry of all true believers so, back to the question of hypocrisy. So, let's go back again to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. But aren't we hypocrites too, right? So, here's the question. Do Jesus' words equally apply to us? Got a yes? Anybody want to take a no to that one? <laughs> OK, this is what he says about them, right? Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? OK, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, a, like a question that we need to struggle with, right? Definitely we can't say we're, we're not hypocrites. Because a lot of the description of what it means to be a hypocrite definitely still applies to Christians, right? But these are very strong words coming from Jesus, right? So um, let's see Let's see what uh, Cedric has to say about this. So Cedric offers this test. Let's ask the question again of ourselves. Are we hypocrites, right? Cedric offers this as a test. Now try yourselves in this. What is the restraint of your sinning? Suppose all men in the world were dead or in a dead sleep. Suppose that no eye did see you. Suppose that no tongue of human justice would call you to account. Would not your heart then with full sail spread out itself? Would you not now, like the lions in the night, wander about for your praise would you not or would not your heart turn out itself let go itself drive out its secret inclinations would you not do that in any place which you now commit in secret corners so you going with yes for that one <laughs> i think we can all say yes <laughs> So according to Sedgwick, there are, we are all by nature born hypocrites, but there are different types of hypocrites. This means we cannot say we are all hypocrites and include both Christians and non-Christians in this statement. Sedgwick defines three types of hypocrisy and I have them listed up there. One, natural hypocrisy, which affects every human heart and is on display in every natural person. Two, soul-destroying religious hypocrisy, which speaks to those who put on a good show outwardly, but inwardly hate all forms of true holiness. Right? We can't say this of a Christian. And three, occasional hypocrisy, which applies to Christians who are not unsaved hypocrites, like the Pharisees but can in act inconsistently to their confession from time to time. So even Christians can act in non-Christian ways. So now there are a number of ways to look at sin. Is it open or hidden? Is it greater sin or a lesser sin? Is it done in ignorance? or with a high-handed knowledge of what is wrong. The latter is what we call sins of presumption. And that's what Blake was talking about earlier in our lesson. So, according to Mark Jones, we speak of sins committed in two forms related to what we know as sin. The first is ignorantly without conscious awareness of sin, or two, presumptuously or deliberately with such awareness. Such a contrast is set forth in Psalm 19, verses 12 through 13. Let's read that. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent From hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So, as he prays for forgiveness for hidden faults or sins committed unintentionally in verse 12, he then prays to be kept from presumptuous sins or those done those done with intention and sets those in two different categories, right? And we see the same thing, the same contrast set forth in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 15, which reads as follows. And this is, there's certain emphasis added. And we're reading verses 27 and 30 through 31. If any one person sins unintentionally, He shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. With these texts in mind, Sedgwick says the following, presumptuous presumptuous sins are the bold darings, so this is a definition for presumptuous sin, and proud adventurings of the heart upon things or ways known to be unlawful against express threatenings either upon false confidence or upon contemptuous slighting or desperate willfulness. And according to Mark Jones, Christians who sin presumptuously have a false, let me put Christians in quotes for now, Christians who sin presumptuously have a false confidence and, bo- and both misunderstand and trivialize the mercy of God. They think they can willfully sin against God because He will be merciful and forgive them later. They abuse the mercy of God in Christ by their deliberate disobedience. Go ahead. Okay. Do you presume that? Is that a sin? It's a sin to go against conscience, right? Anything that you know you ought to do and do it anyway, that's a sin, right? Or, right. Okay, so, so again, we're looking at presumptuous sins as going, uh, they willfully sin against God because he will be merciful and forgive them later. So this is like the definition of carnal Christianity. Car- yeah, carnal Christianity. This, this is, uh, in, in modern terms, that, that, is a, that definitely falls into this category of presumptuous sinning. So to put this in context, let's take a moment to look at the vocabulary of presumptuous sin. Okay, so these these four words right here you could use any time to actually discuss, you know, to present the gospel to somebody, if they just understand the definitions of these terms. Um, what does it mean to be just? Or you can ask like what does a just judge do follows the, law. follows the law right he enforces the law he upholds the law the law right this is what just means okay is anyone righteous before God's law gotta know what's one okay Sands 1, is anyone righteous before the law? No, no right? So, all fallen man then, right? Um, are, are we law breakers or law keepers, right? Law breakers, right? None is righteous. Okay, so what does justice look like? Okay, here's our justice term. What does justice look like for law breakers? Condemnation, any other words? Punishment, wrath. Wrath. Okay, these are good words. So God's wrath is what lawbreakers deserve if the judge is just, right? Okay, so relative then to what you deserve, right? Justice is, is when lawbreakers get what they deserve, right? Relative to getting what you deserve, then, what is mercy? Not getting what you deserve, right? Okay. And relative to that same question, getting what you deserve, what is grace then? Getting what you don't deserve, right? Justice, getting what you do deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve, right? Okay. Okay. So with those definitions then, okay, does anyone deserve God's mercy, right? No, you cannot deserve something that you don't deserve, right? It's logically inconsistent with the definition of the word mercy, right? Okay, so then what do we call, Here's a, think about this one for a minute, what do we call someone who says or acts, like they deserve God's mercy, right? Presumption sure that's that our definition for our or word for today. Give me another word. Somebody who, okay, let me think about this. What do we say? What are they saying about God when they when they are making a claim that they deserve His mercy, or they act is as, as if they deserve His mercy? is not just. Okay? They they're deceived about what? About their sin and and the God who gave them that sin right? or that that gave them the law, right? So hypocritical, okay? If they're claiming that God is just and then demanding his mercy, right? That God owes them, right? So, let me throw out this word. Would you say somebody who de- who demands God's mercy, right? Who says they deserve God's mercy. I would put that into the category of idolater, right? This is somebody who has invented a God of their own creation. One who is not just, right? One who can go against his own righteousness, Right? So what do you, So then, as we think about this, what are we saying then? What are some more words that we can say then about God and His majesty uh, when we not only say that we deserve mercy, but act as if we deserve mercy? When we willfully sin against God's law, right? It's acting like we deserve His mercy acting like there is not a punishment for sin. What are we saying about God? Well, you don't love him. That we that we don't love him? What if we say that we do love him and then still act in that way? <laughs> mhm. Right? Okay. So this So now we're going to get into Thomas Manton. According to Thomas Manton, the sin of presumption is implicit blasphemy. He warned there is a blasphemy included in it as if God were an ignorant God and did not know the sinner's wickedness or a careless God that would not take notice of it or an impotent God that could not punish his rebellion, or an unjust God that would not punish his rebellion. This is what we're saying about God by our actions when we act contrary to his law. Right. So, as idolatry and as blasphemy, it's easy to see how presumptuous sin can be manifest in the life of an unbeliever, right? Thomas Manton says it this way, For the unregenerate, the repetition of presumptuous sins further hardens the heart. Manton noted, Every day when they sin, away their tenderness. Men grow willful by frequent sinning, and their hearts become as hard as the highway by frequent treading upon it. By every presumptuous sin, they put a new difficulty in the way of their conversion. But if we are associating presumptuous sin with idolatry and blasphemy, okay, how appropriate is it to apply such strong words to the regenerate? Should we... Should we say presumptuous sins are idolatrous, presumptuous sins are blasphemous, and then say Christians do this? Well, I mean, if they're professing Christians and they commit this sin, right? They, they're committing presumptuous sin, right? Then uh, is, is that a category? They're, they're, they're deceiving themselves, right? If they do such a thing. Okay. They're deceiving they say, themselves when they say, Lord, Lord, I never knew. Or <laughs> okay. Right. right. That's not a Christian. Right. Right. If if Christ never knew them. Okay So I mean, we can still again, we can still talk about Christians behaving in non-Christian ways, right? There's still a category for such a thing. Let's see that That would be like an example of when they are behaving in a way that's consistent with what they profess, right. But, but you, you brought up the witness. I mean, it does undermine our witness, though, right? It is, it is, it's undermining our witness if we're trying to communicate a God that we act in rebellion to, that we act as if his law doesn't matter, right? Um, so, according to Mark Jones on this, speaking of the regenerate, um, he says, after regeneration, the danger of presumptuous sins heightens in a manner that should. St- that should sober us God holds his own to a higher standard to whom much is given much is required that's from Luke chapter 12 because we have greater knowledge and greater powers to resist sin our Lord may punish our sins of presumption in this life with a greater severity than he seems to inflict even on the ungodly this is Mark Jones words so the christian the christian spends much time in the word of god so this is showing how his sin is greater because of what he knows the christian spends much time in the word of god and in corporate worship being fed by teachers of the word christians receive truth upon truth from god they move from immaturity to maturity in their knowledge of the lord they experience God's power and grace, then to willfully sin and presumption not only tramples these heavenly gifts, but also despises the gracious Lord who gave them. So, bringing all this together now, how are we to understand our place in this war against secret and presumptuous sins? To answer that, we'll end our time this morning in chapter 13 of the Westminster Confession. And it reads like this, reading from paragraph two. This sanctification is throughout. So speaking, speaking of sanctification. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So you see we have these two words, uh, throughout and imperfect. So in this chapter, I don't know if any of you were reading along, uh, Cedric referred to these two categories as uh, perfection of integrity and perfection of eminency which we don't have right so here's a question how can we know that sanctification is imperfect in this life as it says right here right so even in even in the definition of sanctification it's a growing righteousness right Okay, there's a good clue. We continue to sin, right? So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, right? And his word is not in us. So looking down to the text, continual and irreconcilable war, how should we understand this war? Do Christians have like a good angel and a bad angel sitting on their shoulders as commonly portrayed in cartoons? We do have a conscience. We have a conscience, okay? And is that contra- conscience a neutral party that is taking in uh, you know, good influences and bad influences? Right? So in, in the text up here, we see not that we have something like that we have a neutral conscience or that we have like two natures or something like that, but we do see two parts, right? Where it's talking about uh, the flesh and the spirit, right? So we have two parts. One part is the, what the scripture calls the old man, right? Flesh, remaining corruption, these types of terms versus the new man that, or here the spirit or what will be referred to in our next paragraph, uh, paragraph three, as the regenerate part. Let's get into that one. So, paragraph three, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate, regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after an heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed them. So for a quick scripture text here, so in First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine and ten, we have we have this which often is used as a condemnation, but you'll be familiar with the text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? Okay. So when we fall into these categories, um, then the question is, is there any hope for us? Those who have, uh, sometimes sin has a hold of us and we feel like we never can have victory over it, right? When we struggle with these sins of presumption or secret sins, right? The question is now, where, is there any hope for somebody who uh, is, um, has a long struggle with sins as described in that text? And what is that hope? Sanctifying Spirit of Christ, Sanctifying Spirit of Christ right? Because if you keep reading in the very next verse, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Okay? So, like one has the sanctifying spirit of Christ and the other doesn't, right? It's, it's very hard to compare those two, right? They're, they're, they're both um, uh, behaving sinfully, right? Denying denying Christ by their actions. Um They both seek repentance from different sources, right? Right. Um, But yeah, one has the sanctifying spirit of Christ and one doesn't, right? Go ahead. And it seems like that plays into the the desire. Right, right. Yeah, so definitely the battle to live for God's glory is not something that the unregenerate have, right? So being in the battle is something to be thankful for. Um, So that's all we have for today. Um, join us again next week when Michael Alexander will be leading us through pride and selfishness. Thank you.